electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Last Call, the rather murky outlook for EVs getting a little murkier. Two big names raising new questions about demand. Call it Zuck and Run. Mark Zuckerberg selling millions of Meta, and wait till you hear what happened the last time he did it. Speaking of Meta, a new whistleblower laying out stunning allegations to the Senate, to the lawmakers. At today's hearing, join us on what comes next. Oil prices tumbling to lows not seen since midsummer, but OPEC may have different plans in mind. Robinhood earnings revealing a surprising state about retail investing, and that as a stock on the move. Plus, apparently it's time to get baked. Now, the famed Magnolia Bakery brand is selling all kinds of green with edibles. All that and much more across the hour. It's a belly up or buckle up, because last call is up right now. All right, good evening here. Good afternoon out west. Thanks for joining us. All that ahead, but first up on last call, if you know I'm starting the show by standing here, we're going to lead with the markets and your money because it was another big day for big cap tech and a few of the so-called magnificent seven. All right, you know them by now. The big seven, Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, Meta, Microsoft, NVIDIA, Tesla, and a partridge in a pear tree. Well, they've had a great run recently, and get this. The NASDAQ is now on an eight-day win streak. Now, if that doesn't sound all that impressive, I mean, eight, come on, it's not 40. Well, it is. It's the longest NASDAQ win streak since 2021. In other words, we've had none this year or all of last year. So, Let's kind of break all down what has been going on, not only now, but over the past year. First off, if you invested in the NASDAQ Triple Q, one of the most widely owned and widely traded ETFs out there, just give yourself a pat on the back because you've done well. All right, first off, historically bespoke investment group. Thank you for this. Eight-day win streaks have happened 21 times before, but they don't portend massive gains. In fact, bespoke found of those 21 times, the average return over three months, the average, is just 1.6%. But again, you're going to have times where you made a lot or times it went down, so take averages for what they are. And as we said, if you bought the NASDAQ Triple Q one year ago, you didn't put any thought into it. You just bought it and let it ride. You've made a lot of money. In fact, how much? Let's take a look. The NASDAQ, eh, 270. What? This is a one-year chart now, by the way, and sort of a few bumps in the road, but overall just up, up, and away. Closed at 373 today for a 12-month gain of 38%. You made 38% if you just bought the triple Q and did nothing else. All right, what about inside the market? Some of the favorite stocks, well, some have done better than others. NVIDIA, it's a one-month performance. NVIDIA, eh, it's one of the NASDAQ stocks that actually hasn't performed big. It's up about a half a percent. But Microsoft, Microsoft, wow. One-month performance, most of that coming in this last eight-day win streak. Pretty much flat. For about, I don't know, the first three weeks of the year, 
But guess what? Microsoft plus 10% over the past month. And that, my friends, a new all-time closing high. Microsoft stock has never closed higher than today. And over the past month, Amazon, really the standout, again, an 11.5% gain. And most of that coming during this eight-day win streak. Amazon was actually lower about two weeks ago before. Kind of, I don't know, got the wind beneath the sails, if you will, pushing Amazon up for a one-month gain of 11.5%. Not bad. The Magnificent Seven continues to be magnificent. All right, joining us now is Wedbush Securities Managing Director Dan Ives to talk about it. He is the VP of Wall Street at Horizon, or, or excuse me, and the VP of Research at Horizon, Christine Short. Every, I'm just going so fast, Christine, you forgive me for that. Uh, I'm going to start with you. Appreciate it. What do you make of this, this eight-day run for the NASDAQ, given that we haven't had one in a, in a year and a half? It's, it's all very exciting. I hate to be the Debbie Downer here, though. I'm not necessarily... Uh-oh. It as a, a vote of confidence from investors. Sure, it's because of the Fed meeting last week and this growing belief that rate cuts will be coming in the next six weeks. And yeah, we know tech is is very sensitive to to rising long term rates, so that's that's good. Run then yields falling. Sure, that's also a good thing for tech stocks that um, and other risky assets. However, I just think investors piling into the mega cap tech name, specifically that Magnificent Seven, as you pointed out just shows they're looking for a safe haven. They're not really sure what to do. I think uncertainty is still abound out there in the market, whether you're looking at the consumer or or even Q3 earnings season in in corporate sentiment. And so I'm I'm, I'm taking it as investors sort of waiting and seeing. They're hiding out in these names. You've still got relatively low volume, low low volatility over the last few months. And to me, that seems, seems like investors are just kind of hanging out, waiting to see what happens. Well, uh, let me, Dan, maybe ask it a different way. Christine's probably too polite to say it like this, and I love all of our viewers and listeners, so this is no insult to anybody. But I think what I'm kind of hearing through Christine, and she can speak for herself, Dan, is that it's kind of almost lazy investing, right? It's like, I'm just going to buy the triple Q, and then I'm just going to chill. And guess what? It's worked. It's like betting on Mahomes in the fourth quarter, right? You just keep doing it because it just keeps working until it doesn't. How much longer does this type of run have to go? How much more can, say, Microsoft stretch its valuation? Yeah, look, I mean, we believe this is the beginning of the next tech bull market. And I think ultimately that's why I think it's a table pounder, not just into year end, but into 2024, because we have the biggest tech transformation trend in 30 years with AI. And the New York City cab driver was bearish on tech stocks and their earnings. And look what's happened. Digital advertising cloud strong iPhones better than expected as that sort of dust is cleared from Apple. I think tech stocks are up another 10 to 12 percent this year. And going into next year, you know, in my opinion, this is really going to be a tech bull market, despite many yelling fire in a crowded theater. Christine, again, I wasn't trying to put words in your mouth, but I think you got my point, which is it just, you know, you don't have to really think about it. You just throw the money in the queue and A year later, you have 38% of your money, and I'm happy for everybody that has done that. But at some point, I wouldn't mind seeing another 3,300 or so publicly traded companies in the United States also start to participate. Yeah, you just throw your money in tech, and it it grows, and you're right. But the the valuations are are getting wildly high at this point. There's certainly cheaper options out there in other sectors um, 
you know, I'm thinking about utilities, energy, materials that are, are good value right now. So the question really becomes, um, you know, how much are investors willing to pay for every dollar of earnings for these megatech companies? And it, apparently it's it's quite a lot. But my concern is that uh, when if there isn't a, re- a reversal here, that investors are really at high risk. And again, um, I'm not saying I'm not bullish for next year, but yeah. I am seeing signs of uncertainty specifically within those Q3 calls, all of those magnificent, not all of them, Tesla, there was a couple that didn't do so well. But even those that did well, it didn't necessarily guarantee the stock went up the next day because just beating Q3 earnings, you didn't necessarily see them surpass revenue by a large amount. And then we're starting to see Q4 uh, you know, estimates come down. Analysts are pulling those down. Um, and so that's what makes me a little yeah. nervous going forward, as well as the, the CEO and CFO commentary on the calls. It was quite cautionary. So even companies that surpassed estimates, you still kind of heard a little bit of, Dan, of cautionary uncertainty in the calls. Yeah, and Apple sales declining four quarters in a row. Dan, very quickly, you know me. I like to ask the questions others don't want to ask, right? It doesn't always make me the most popular guy on Twitter or whatever. Don't care. I'm going to ask them. Here's another one. What if AI isn't? everything we think it's supposed to be. Look, I mean, Brian, to that point, I think what's so important in terms of this earnings season, Microsoft, which really next to NVIDIA, the godfather of AI, that's the best barometer for AI spend. That's, that's starting now. And there's a monetization. Microsoft's the best barometer. You look at names like Datadog, Palantir. I believe this AI gold rush, despite obviously some of the concern out there, it is just starting. I think it's a get out the popcorn moment for AI. We sit here six, 12 months from now, and I view it as just a transformational trend that it's really called the, the, what's the gasoline in the tank of this next tech bull market. Fair enough. The godfather of AI just depends. If it's Vito Corleone, didn't end well. If it's Sonny, didn't end well. If it's Michael, everything works out. Dan, appreciate it. Christine Short, thank you very much. All right, to that point, folks, another positive day for your money. All the major averages are up. Obviously, we wouldn't have been doing this if we didn't. Got a nice little rally, not just on the NASDAQ, S&P and the Dow as well. Inside the S&P, your stud and dud du jour. Both big reactions to earnings, the big winner of the day. Generation Digital up 8.5%. They own cybersecurity brands like Norton and LifeLock. And for the biggest decliner today was Air Products and Chemicals, APD, down 12.5%. They're an industrial gas company. It's a huge drop by the way, for them. All right, up next, two big EV names on the move after hours with very different stories on what is ahead for demand. Plus, Mark Zuckerberg making a big move with Meta. You're going to want to hear what happened the last time he did it. And you will, but only if you stay with us. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Hey, I'm Ruben. My band and I have a new song. I'm also a tow truck driver. When you move over and slow down, you're making sure I get to go home at the end of the day and see my bandmates. When you see flashing lights, remember, they're not just roadside workers. Thank you for moving over and slowing down. All right, welcome back to Last Call. Rivian 
and Lucid both out with numbers tonight, but kind of offering different views on how things are going. CBC Auto and Airline Industry reporter Phil Lebeau joining us now with more on each. Phil. And Brian, let's start with Rivian, because if you're a Rivian investor, this was the kind of quarter you want to see. Solid numbers and an improvement in guidance. We're not going to go through all the numbers, but some of the key highlights here. Narrower than expected loss in the third quarter. The loss per vehicle improved about two grand. It's now $30,648 per vehicle. And the 2023 guidance, they've now cut how much they expect to lose by $4 billion. So as you take a look at this and you look at their deliveries, what you're seeing right now with Rivian is, you know, they're expecting, they've increased their guidance. They're expecting to build at least 50,000 vehicles this year. So that's two quarters in a row. They've raised their guidance. Lots to discuss with RJ Scaringe, CEO of Rivian, when we talk to him tomorrow morning on Squawk Box. By the way, he has definite thoughts about this hand-wringing over EV demand being a little bit overblown. Now let's switch gears and talk about Lucid. This was not a a report that you're going to look at and say, oh, pretty good. They lost money again. 28 cents a share uh, is what they lost in the third quarter. And they cut their production again. Now it's down to a range of 8,000 to 8,500 vehicles this year. Previously, they expected to build 10,000 vehicles. Had a chance to talk with Peter Rawlinson, CEO of Lucid, before uh, the conference call after the numbers came out. And he said, look, we think the prudent thing to do right now, we need to be prudent to preserve capital. Fair enough. That's what they need to do. But it does raise the question, Brian, about Lucid and whether or not it can get to profitability. I know some people will hear that and say, well, the Saudis Saudis own more than 65% of the company. You know, if they lose some money for a while, that's okay. No CEO wants to continue losing money. And Peter Rawlinson believes that they, with these cuts, will move towards profitability eventually. They're not given a guideline when that happens, but that's their outlook. But Rivian's still bullish, and I'm assuming there's still a wait list for for the vehicles. Phil, I don't don't want to put you on the spot, but it was 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 well over a year. Yeah, they're not giving that anymore. But look, on the conference call, it was very clear. RJ Scaringe is very optimistic about where the company is right now and where it is headed. Not just with the you know the vehicles right now, the R1T and the R1S, the SB and the SUV, mm. the TB yep. and the pickup truck, but the R2 vehicles, the smaller vehicles that will be built at the new plant in Georgia. Yes, they don't come out until 2026, but they believe that they've got they're going to have the capital needed in order to get there. More importantly, yep. they believe that they can raise production over time. This is not for your amazing interview tomorrow morning, Phil, but just for a friend, can you ask RJ if they could just soften the suspension just a little bit? Just soften it. Phil LeBeau, thank you. (laughs) Phil. All right, with us tonight for reaction is Dan Ives still here. Um, You can read reviews of those suspension things if you want. Uh, Rivian, you were ticked off when they announced that convertible bond offering. Are you calming down a little bit? How do you view Rivian's quarter? Yeah, I mean, that was still a black eye, but if you look... Well, crush the stock. But, and it, but if you look fundamentally, I mean, this was definitely a step in the right direction. I think the important thing is that it's about production ramping. Look, I think they could ultimately, from reservation, even though they're not giving out 100K plus in terms of where they are, mm. it's about ultimately can they satisfy the demand. You are starting to see some credibility get restored to Rivian, but it's a still uphill battle given what we've seen the last Beautiful few Beautiful car. The R1S, one of the best-looking cars of any kind out there, but how do they make money on it? They can't keep losing money on every car. I mean, can they? Maybe they can. Look, it's going to be a pivotal 2024 because investors need to see these companies, You know, and Phil talked about Lucid, need to see the path to profitability. And I think yeah. if you, that's really going to be – 
feet to the fire situation, not just a Rivian, but obviously Lucid and another debacle. Well, Lucid has the richest rich uncle of all, okay? The Saudi investment fund. They, they've got that and it hasn't gone well for them, but the Saudis, basically, they've got plenty of money. Rivian doesn't necessarily have Amazon anymore, do they? They rely on individual investors or... Well, look, they don't really necessarily have daddy Warbucks. And I think that's the issue relative to Amazon. That's how they ultimately got to where they are. But for Rivian now, it's about producing and ultimately getting to that point where profitability is going to be there, especially in an EV industry where competitors are coming from all different angles. They are. And by the way, BMW did great. 15% of their sales were EVs. Overall, 94% jump across luxury brands. The domestics have a different issue, but that's that's a conversation for tomorrow, but not with you, Dan Ives. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Because tomorrow, joining us live on Last Call is UAW President Sean Fain, the man that negotiated hard against the big three automakers and came away with historic wage jumps. He will join us live on Last Call to talk about that fight, the win, and maybe where they're going to go next. My guess is, if I knew the anchor, we might also probably get some kind of an EV question in there as well. Sean Fain tomorrow. You cannot miss that. All right. Still ahead here on Last Call tonight. Failing to act to protect teens, a metal whistleblower delivering eye-opening testimony to the Senate, to the lawmakers that were there that are pushing this bill will join us in how Congress may respond. Plus, Zuckerberg selling off millions of meta. What happened the last time he did it? Well, you're going to want to see, and we'll show you coming up. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. All right, welcome back. Time to get random but interesting. And today we are going full zuck. Because Facebook parent Meta is most definitely a big stock to watch right now. Here's why. A few days ago, Mark Zuckerberg filed to sell about 28,000 shares of Meta. That would raise about $17 million for him and his family. And that is not a lot of money when you are worth tens of billions of dollars. But this is interesting because it's rare and it may end up being some kind of a tell on the stock. Zuck does not sell Facebook stock much. The last time he did was in November of 2021, two years ago. Now, it was a pre-planned, pre-authorized sale. But it turned out to be amazingly well-timed because right as he sold, the stock sank and sank and sank some more. In fact, MetaShares collapsed over 70% from November of 21 until bottoming of November of last year. They wiped out nearly three-fourths of investor value before bouncing back in a big way. What a ride. And Zuckerberg, even with a pre-planned sale, seemed to almost top tick the stock. Who knows what this means, but hey, you've been warned that at least a couple shares, 28,000 for him, not much, that Zuckerberg is selling again. So watch this space and watch that stock. Random and hopefully interesting. All right, speaking of meta, it is back under the government spotlight. Facebook and Instagram's parent company at the center of a big hearing on Capitol Hill. 
A former employee says Meta was aware of harassment facing teens and kids on its platforms, but failed to address them. His name is Arturo Bihar. He is a former engineering director at Meta, and he told lawmakers his own daughter's troubling experiences with Instagram. She and her friends began having awful experiences, including repeated unwanted sexual advances, harassment. She reported these incidents to the company, and it did nothing. Now, Behar is now calling on Congress to regulate social media to protect teens and kids. And joining us now are two lawmakers aiming to do just that. Senator Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut and Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee. Both of them are members of the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee that hosted the hearing today. And earlier this year, they reintroduced a bipartisan bill called the Kids Online Safety Act, COSA, meant to help kids be protected from social media harm, predators, bullying, and more. As you can see, a bipartisan effort, and we appreciate you both coming on last call. Senator Blumenthal, I'll start with you. You introduced the bill in February of 2022, didn't get much traction, reintroduced it in May of this year. It's now November of this year. What is the, what is the holdup on a bill that, at least on the surface, would seem to be a, a fairly no-brainer? Uh, We introduced the bill, and it now has nearly half the Senate as co-sponsors. Bipartisan bill, evenly divided, Republican-Democrat. What has taken a bit of time, not all that long in congressional terms, is attracting and mobilizing the support, not only from colleagues, but also from the moms and dads, the kids themselves, who are saying to us, we want to take back our online lives. And today, we had a whistleblower who showed very dramatically that he, as an expert, warned Mark Zuckerberg directly, Sandberg, and others who are part of the Meta team, that they were causing severe harms. And he is an expert, a product designer, and he was hired specifically to make recommendations how to make the site safer. And so I think the answer to your question is we have mounting momentum as a result of those survivors and victims and the moms who have told us. One said, when are you going to act? How many more children have to die before Congress takes action? Yeah, Senator Blackburn, I mean, to to Senator Blumenthal's point, this is a gentleman who was not just some random Facebook or Meta employee. This was a guy in engineering, to Senator Blumenthal's point, sort of brought in specifically to help maintain safety protocols, and his daughter was subject to abuse and bullying and sexual harassment that he could not stop. If this gentleman is is not considered safe or feeling safe, what did you take away from today's hearing? What we have learned from, from Arturo Behar, as you were talking about the whistleblower, is that he worked for years with Facebook. He was their director of safety and security and was engineering the security protocols, safety by design, uh, duty of care, and making certain that the site was going to be safe for younger users and that you wouldn't be having youth harms. What he learned after he retired from Facebook, then he came back 
as a consultant to Facebook, working with the same group of people, Adam Masseri at Instagram, Chris Cox, Sheryl Sandberg, and Mark Zuckerberg there at Facebook. What he realized was even though he had engineered the proper protocols and put them in place, that they were not being utilized and enforced on the site and you were beginning to have algorithms that were pushing kids deeper into certain areas. Maybe it was eating disorders, suicide, cyberbullying, uh, meeting pedophiles, drug dealers. And then also that the kids, when they would report something that was wrong on the site or somebody that was making unwanted sexual advances, the site did nothing. Yeah. And that is when he stepped in and Senator Blumenthal and I had some of the emails and memos that he wrote to these leaders, that he wrote to Adam Masseri, that he wrote to Sheryl Sandberg and Mark Zuckerberg and laid out what needed to be done in order to protect children online and nothing was done. They knew okay. the harms. They made a conscious decision to ignore it and do nothing. Well, Senator Blumenthal, I'm sure that everybody with kids and probably many people that don't have kids would say that protecting children from online harm is shouldn't be a, a partisan issue at all. Does it doesn't matter what your political stripes may be. So this is now a year and a half after you guys introduced the bill. What or maybe who? is the holdup. What's the, what's the problem here? I'm going to be very blunt with you, Brian. The holdup here is the literally millions, tens, hundreds of millions of dollars spent by big tech to try to kill this bill. Mm -hmm. And the reason I want to kill it is because they make a lot of money by driving this toxic content about eating disorders, bullying, suicide, illicit drugs at kids through their black box algorithms. They love their business model. More eyeballs for longer periods of time mean more advertisers. And so the hold up here is that my colleagues have to stand up to one of the most powerful lobbies in the planet. And here's the good news. We've been through it before. Big Tobacco, which I sued, also tried to stop reforms. And it similarly pitched addictive products at kids. Well, big tech is the new big tobacco. And moms and dads, kids themselves, know that we can stop this toxic content by simply giving them the tools they need to disconnect from the algorithm, making the algorithms themselves more transparent, and making sure there's accountability. Mm -hmm. If they're doing harm, those big tech companies, they ought to be held accountable. And this measure has nothing to do with censorship, nothing to do with blocking content. It has everything to do with product design. We know how to make mm -hmm. safe cars, seat belts, airbags. We ought to be able to make a safe product through the internet. Senators, yeah, Blumenthal. and one of Go the ahead, things quickly, that please, we had, thank you. Yeah, what we have learned is that when our kids are online, they are the product. It is a very lucrative product. Oh for these tech companies. And that is why they want them on the site longer. And then they're data mining our children and selling that. This is why you have, they're making a lot of money yeah. on advertising. 
and uh, it's time to put a stop to that and to protect our children in the virtual space. Yeah, because if they're making a lot of money with no subscription costs, then we are the product. Senator Marsha Blackburn, right. Senator Richard Blumenthal, bipartisan effort. Much appreciated. Thank you very much. You got it. All Thank right. you. Have a good night. Still ahead. Robinhood shares. Remember them? Moving big after hours. What its results show about the health of the retail investor. You next. Plus, fascinating new findings on what younger Americans think about the state of stocks and investing. And it probably will surprise you. Time now for tomorrow's news tonight. Some of the headlines you're going to be talking about tomorrow morning, CNBC style. And there's one big one out there tonight, and that is Robinhood's earnings. The retail trading company seeing a slowdown in trading activity. Kate Rooney is here on set to break down the numbers and the report. Kate, good to see you. Yeah, great to see you, Brian. You. Good evening. So Robinhood is looking to reinvent itself in this higher rate environment. With a lot fewer people trading stocks, its earnings report really speaks to that. With higher rates boosting interest income, as trading fees slump, the stock tanking after hours though, after the break, brokerage firm reported a miss on revenue and a drop in monthly active users' earnings. We're back in the red this quarter thanks to a legal fine. This comes after a surprise profit. Earlier this year, monthly active users fell to $10.3 million. That was lower than expected. Net interest income, that was a bright spot, almost doubling from a year ago. Trading has been fizzling. That was Robinhood's bread and butter back in the pandemic. But transaction-based revenue, which was down 11%, uh, that was down 11%. Options, though, made up a bulk of what does remain there. Equities and crypto trading also slowed. Crypto fees were down about 55%. CFO Jason Warnick telling me as rates rise, trading activity slows. But bright side for them, the business is naturally hedged against changes in interest rates, as he put it. As far as the revenue miss, he told me that September trading volumes fell off quite a bit. So that was one of the big reasons. Executives on the call talked about Robinhood more like a bank than a trading app, highlighting High-yield savings accounts, retirement accounts, then an upcoming launch in Europe as well. CEO Vlad Tenev on the earnings call saying that they're starting to expand into the $12 trillion IRA market. It's also pretty bullish on global expansion. Here's what he said. We are also just now beginning to take our first steps to serve customers outside the U.S., where we believe the need and opportunity for innovation in financial services is even greater than it is domestically. As we continue to execute on our strategy, we believe we can grow into one of the largest and most profitable financial companies in the world. You heard him, Brian. One of the largest, most profitable financial companies in the world. Still not there yet. Still very much a show-me story for Wall Street. It's down about 43% from the IPO price. Well, not bad considering it's a company a lot of people were, were really concerned about. All right, Kate, stay with us right here because you were nice enough to come into the studio. And staying on the topic of investing, a new CNBC and Generation Lab survey out today taking the pulse of younger Americans aged 18 to 34 and how they're feeling one year ahead of the presidential election. And this is surprising and I think refreshing. When it comes to investing, over 60% of young people feel the stock market is a good place to build wealth and invest compared to 37% who do not. And when it comes to the overall economy, the top two stressors in the economy for young Americans, uh, probably no surprise here, inflation and rising mortgage rates. Let's bring in another voice. And that is Investopedia Editor-in-Chief and Senior VP, Caleb Silver. Great stuff on this, Caleb. I, you know, honestly, 60%. If you had asked me just what I thought your results would be, I would say 30%. I would have inverted it. How do we read it? Yeah, it's good 
to see that they actually trust the stock market and think it's a great place to build wealth. We believe that wholeheartedly. But what they say and what they do sometimes are very different. When you look at what? the average 401k <laughs> balance for young people, you see at around $30,000 for people 25 to 34 years old. They're still young. They're getting there. So we'd like to see people contributing a little bit more. The fact that they think it's a good place to build wealth and there's trust there, that's important. And here's the part where Kate Rooney comes in, I think, because how do you invest? And they said they like stocks, but by 1%, a nose, it's cryptocurrencies over stocks. Crypto's still, like, even after FTX and all the stuff, still number one on this list. While this was happening, that FTX trial was playing out, Bitcoin was up $5,000 or something. So Robinhood earnings were just coming off of that. They talked about some of the interest, and they're still bullish on it, even though you're seeing sort of the slump in trading fees, you're seeing muted trading activity in general. And Bitcoin itself is, is ripping. But one of the things that retail traders and crypto traders especially tend to look for is volatility, which isn't necessarily a great trading strategy if you're looking to jump in on volatility. That's, that's really probably not what you would recommend, yes. at least. Uh, but Robinhood really is still betting on that. Yeah, we call that catching the falling knife if you're betting on volatility. Yeah. And we did this survey, too, nationwide of young people last year. And the average age that young people thought they would retire would be 57 years old, and they thought crypto would be a big part of their retirement strategy. That's something that might need to be looked at a little bit closer because it's a pretty volatile asset in air quotes right there. The fact that they think they're going to retire way before older generations, what are they going to do with all that time, A, and B, how are they going to get there if it's going to be crypto? So the fact that in your survey and the CNBC survey, they trust the stock market and think they can build wealth there, good sign, get to it, because the earlier you start, what, the better. And what I, what I like about it, though, is that they're responding to it. Whether I don't care if it's crypto or the stock market or what did you say earlier? T-Bill and chill. T-Bill and chill. T- where are they yeah. saying that? Like Palo Alto? <laughs> like the mean streets of Pacific Palisades? I was like, reading it in an analyst T-Bill and, and chill. It's the, the play in the this Netflix is, and chill. Okay. But it speaks to some of the high, like retail investors searching for higher yield. The bond ETFs are like the hot new thing. It's competing with crypto, if you can believe it or not. I will tell you, know, I do believe it. Because I said, like, I, I, when you, you and I were, were talking, I think, two years ago, I said, boring is the new sexy yeah. when it comes to investing. I just take heart. Everyone's always slamming Gen Z and slamming millennials. They're thinking about it. I don't care if you buy a bond ETF or the crypto or Dogecoin. At least you're thinking about your money, Caleb. Yeah, and hopefully establishing a plan to build wealth and grow it over time. And that means investing. But it could be anything. Stock market, we think, is a great path for that. Diversify into real estate. Buy some T-bills. Uh, who can afford real estate at 34? That's, and, and that's let's be clear. The, the, the mortgage rate the thing. Sure. But there's other ways to approach the real estate market versus just buying your first house. So hopefully people are getting into that and learning. The whole thing, though, Brian and Kate, is education, right? We need to have make sure these young people have that financial literacy so they can choose the right path for themselves and at least have a plan. But the signs that they trust the market and are willing to invest in it and have an attachment to some of the biggest companies in it, that's good. That is good. I think I take away a lot from it, take away a lot from everything. Kate and Caleb, great work. Appreciate you having you on. Thank you very much. All right, a quick programming note. Following Disney's earnings tomorrow, Julia Borston will sit down with Bob Iger. Closing bell over time. It's an exclusive. It'll be from their headquarters. This is a battleground stock. That's a big deal interview. 405 Eastern, Julia and Bob. I was going to say mano a mano, but no. Head to head. How about that? All right, coming up. Oil prices heading down and down. But that relief may not last for long. We're next.
All right, welcome back. And maybe some good news at the gas pump. Oil prices, they keep going down. Crude oil slumping to 77 bucks today. That is the lowest level since July. A drop coming on the heels of a rather mixed economic number out of China, as well as some concerns, thankfully, that the Israel-Hamas war may ease a little bit. However, OPEC Plus still seeing a positive outlook for the growth in oil demand. Despite global headwinds at the European Crude Conference in London today, OPEC Secretary General General Haytham Algeis said, quote, the economy, despite the challenges, is still doing quite well. We are still quite robust on demand. Actually, for OPEC, those are pretty strong words. Comments ahead of the next OPEC Plus meeting later this month in Vienna, Austria. All things going well, we will be there on site. And according to a new note from Goldman Sachs, OPEC export estimates still remain relatively high despite extended production cuts. Joining us now is the author of that note, Dan Stroyven. He is the managing director and head of oil research at Goldman Sachs. Dan, it's good to have you on Last Call. I have a feeling we might be seeing each other again in the future. How do I read, for our audience that is not commodity professionals, how do they read your note about OPEC exports and OPEC demand? Yeah, thank you for, uh, for having me, Brian. So big picture, the sell-off today in the last few weeks reflects three factors. As you pointed out, uh, a reduction in the geopolitical risk premium is factor number one. Uh, factor number two, a reduction in positioning. And third, and that's what this note we published today is about, several signals that the oil market may not be tightening as much as was generally expected uh, in the summer because of upside surprises to the supply side uh, rather than to the demand side, consistent with the comments from OPEC that oil demand is, is holding up. And so specifically what we uh, you know, showed in the note today uh, is that estimates of exports by OPEC countries, which announced a cut uh, in April, were very low in the summer, but have risen by roughly uh, a million barrels per day over the last couple uh, of months. And so while the data are noisy, this rise uh, in OPEC exports sort of helps to explain why we're not really seeing the large draws in inventories that we and most uh, analysts uh, had been expecting and hence uh, the sell-off uh, in crude prices. I think the confusing part, and including to myself, Dan, I'll just be honest with it, is if you do the math and you look at the two million barrels a day cuts that they're doing, I know the countries, not all of them are doing it. Some of them cannot. This goes against the quota. They don't have the capacity or, dare I say, they're cheating. We know that. But still, the headline numbers would more suggest a, a bullish market. What is what's the issue between supply and demand? Yes, yeah, so you know our, our assumption is that this recent pickup uh, in exports by OPEC uh, countries is temporary and likely reflects destocking, where producers, when prices almost rallied to hundred dollars per barrel in September, decided to benefit from higher prices and destock. And, and get get higher uh, prices, uh, you know, for for a few for a few weeks. Looking forward, we still think that uh, OPEC will be able to keep brand prices in a high range uh, around uh, eighty to one hundred to one or five dollars uh, per barrel. Uh, and so we still look for deficits uh, next year uh, because we think that demand growth will continue to be firm, and because we do believe that uh, OPEC producers will exercise their high pricing power. And we'll want to see high prices because they have very elevated funding needs. And so our assumption is that the pickup in supply and in exports we're seeing right now is temporary. 
uh, and that uh, you know supply will be uh, will be tightening. Are, are you able to correctly gauge at this point, Dan? Listen, you're Goldman. You've got some of the best people and best resources in the world. But are, is it hard to still really figure out Iran and Russia and how much they are actually selling on the global market via their ghost fleets, ship to ship transfers, et cetera? Um, so, you know, our team and industry more broadly is benefiting from sort of the revolution in big data where we where we track uh, exports uh, using you know, shipping data, satellite data. Um, but the data are still noisy. They get revised. We do our best to build the best possible sort of statistical tools to uh, to track track these data. But the data are, are still noisy. Um, and so sometimes it, it just takes time and judgment to to figure out uh, what's going on. Yeah. And OPEC, if you talk to him, as, as I have, and, and maybe we'll see you at the meeting in uh, the Sunday after Thanksgiving of all times, we'll say that we've kept the price stable. Americans probably want $47 a barrel, not 77 but the range has been pretty stable going back a few years quickly. Yes. Uh, our view is that brand prices are likely to stay in 80 to 105 range. Um, and what we have seen over the last year is when you sort of start to approach the lower end of the range, typically yeah. uh, Saudi Arabia steps up. Uh, tightens the market, and it's generally a good time for investors to re-enter, uh, you know, the market and, and express positive views on that. Dan Stroyman, real pleasure having you on uh, Last Call. Sure won't be the last time. Hope not. Anyway, Dan, thank you. All right, Thanks. time now for our quicker than the ticker. All the best of the rest of the headlines. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock. Credit card debt hitting new highs. Americans owe more than 1.08 trillion dollars, according to the Fed. Balance is a spike by more than $150 billion year over year, the biggest jump since 1999. Also on the rise, NFL viewership up 6% so far this season due to streaming. Thursday night football viewership on Amazon Prime Video up 25% from last year when it debuted on the platform. Holy treasure, 300-year-old sunken Spanish treasure will be exhumed off the coast of Colombia. It is believed to be worth billions of dollars. It's on the sunken galleon called San Jose chest filled with gold coins, silver, and emerald, among other things. Wow. Speaking of crazy finds, this one, of course, in Florida. A human skull found in a Fort Myers thrift store. Yep, human skull. It was on sale for $4,000. A local anthropologist spotted it in the store and reported it to local sheriffs. Skull now in the hands of the local medical examiner's office for testing. And that's all the time we've got. And we're back right after this. All right, welcome back to Last Call. Apparently, the bakery is getting baked. Famed cupcake maker Magnolia Bakery announcing it's partnering with Green Thumb Industries to bring some of their flavors into THC-infused edible bars, cannabis. The edibles come in two flavors for now, classic banana pudding and red velvet. Each bar contains 10 pieces with 10 milligrams of THC in each piece. Don't eat the whole bar. Although Magnolia is a New York icon, you cannot buy their edibles in New York yet. They are only available at dispensaries in Illinois, Nevada, and Massachusetts. For now, joining us now is the man behind the firm that owns Magnolia Bakery, RSE Ventures CEO and co-founder, Matt Higgins. Matt, good to have you back on. Hey, 10 milligrams per piece. I mean, that'll, that'll, that'll put me in front of the TV. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to eat the whole bar. <laughs> no, please so, do not. Yeah, I was just going to. No, not that yeah. I would know. So, 
So quick, quick background. So Magnolia Bakery, uh, iconic brand, right? It's always been part of the cultural zeitgeist ever since uh, Sex in the City. I don't know if anybody out there remembers that. And then for a long time, it became somewhat risk adverse. And we acquired the firm a couple of years ago during the pandemic, and we sort of resurrected that scrappy spirit. And we've been doing collaborations with all sorts of interesting uh, brands. We have, we were in Boy Smells Candle. I don't know why people want to buy Boy Smells, but it's apparently a big thing with this generation and a lot of other really great collaborations. But the overall point of this is Nowadays, you want your brand to show up in unexpected places so that you can partner with other brands and reach new audiences. Yeah. We want the whole country to get banana pudding, and that's the spirit of this uh, collaboration. Oh, we, we talked about the dispensary, so I want to be clear, because, you know, listen, you're a cupcake brand. You know, go to Magnolia Bakery, some of, if not the best in the city, but there's a lot of families in there, too, Matt. As you know, guys, you know, families with kids in tow picking out cupcakes. This is not going to be available there, correct? This is not like you're going to put these things where, like, a kid could grab them. This is at dispensaries where adults know what they're doing, go in and share the brand. No, exactly. I mean, it's a, it's a licensed deal in partnership with a dispensary that only operates in three different states. It's in Massachusetts, Illinois, and Nevada. And obviously it's not in other products, but it's no different than all these other brands that you see doing collaborations with alcohol brands that are, you know, not their core product. It's, it's the same thing, but we, Magnolia Bakery shows up in lots of places you wouldn't expect with banana pudding. We showed up in skin cream and we showed up at Etsy bagels a couple of months ago. The point is to keep doing new and unexpected things that are on trend basically. And, and a lot of people are obviously embracing cannabis culture. And, and this is us leaning into it. I think a year from now, this interview will be quaint because there'll be a ton of other brands doing uh, basically the same thing. How's the business doing otherwise? Magnolia, well, so it's amazing. You, guys, you guys bought it, you know, it was distressed. How's it doing? It's doing amazing. And for me, I was always like, whatever happened to this incredible brand? And then we did the deal during the pandemic, supposed to close the day that New York shut down on the 16th. We did the deal anyway. But since we launched this partnership, banana pudding sales across the country are up 30%. So collaborations work is really the moral of the story because it's what breaks through. Since we announced it, we generate a billion media impressions just on this partnership alone. So the brand is doing great. All right, well, keep us informed on how it and this new deal with Green Thumb certainly is doing Matt Higgins, RSC Ventures. Matt, appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Very welcome. Do you know what happened 10 years ago today? Twitter went public. And no, you did not have a 100 milligram cupcake. Your eyes aren't playing tricks on you. That was Sir Patrick Stewart ringing the opening bell for Twitter. The company invited the famed actor because he was, at the time, a big Twitter user. Now, Twitter opened at about 45 bucks a share. By the closing bell, it had raised about $2 billion in the public market. Then it kind of bounced around, and you know the story. Nine years later, Elon Musk, yeah, that guy, bought Twitter for $44 billion. Company eventually went private again, changed its name to X. And maybe unfortunately for Mr. Musk and the employees who have internal stock, his company's value has plunged around $19 billion. But, uh... Different world. Long way to go. That's it for Last Call for tonight. We will see you tomorrow. Take care. Hi, I'm Josie. My daughter turns five today. I'm also an Ohio State Highway Patrol trooper. When you move over and slow down, you're making sure I can get home to celebrate with my daughter. When you see flashing lights, remember, they're not just roadside workers. Thank you for moving over and slowing down. 